This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. I think Kim Jong-un is hurting, and he's experiencing uh, some significant economic pressures. Kim Jong-un could come to the table now saving face. Let's walk this one back. Sounds to me like you would give the president some credit here for bringing him to the table. I give the president lots of credit for bringing him to the table. Yes, I agree with that. What I would tell the president is be very direct, making it very clear this is what we need to accomplish. I think they would appreciate that. This is a great honor for Kim Jong-un to meet and to actually sit down and negotiate with a sitting president. Ambassador Joe Detrani was a career intelligence officer. He worked on North Korea for his entire career. He served as the intelligence community's mission manager on North Korea, the head of the National Counterproliferation Center, and as the special envoy for six-party talks with North Korea. I had the privilege of sitting down with him recently to talk about North Korea, the upcoming summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, and the future of the Korean Peninsula. We're going to jump right into the conversation, but first a word from our sponsor, Raytheon. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morell. Outside the box, above the earth, beyond our wildest dreams, Raytheon engineers are shaping tomorrow's world from space. Raytheon, delivering trusted, innovative solutions to make the world a safer place. Joe, it is great to have you back on Intelligence Matters. Thank you, Michael. It's great being here. So the last time we talked... Um, We spent quite a bit of time on the history of the relationship between the United States and North Korea and how we got to where we are today. And I think that's really important for people to understand, and I would encourage them to go back and listen to our first interview if they really want to dig into that. But this time, I really think we should focus on the current situation and the road ahead, if that's okay with you. That's perfect. So I'm going to start with the big issue, which is North Korea's nuclear weapons program. Kim Jong-un says that they have the capability to deliver a workable nuclear device to the continental United States, but they have not demonstrated that fully yet. So if you were talking to our policymakers, how would you talk to them about that issue? 
of capability. It's not an immediate existential threat. It very soon will be. They do have the ballistic missile capabilities. We saw the Hwasong 15 in November of 2017 uh, show that it had the reach of the whole of the continental U.S. So they have the delivery system. I think the assessment is they have the nuclear weapons. They've miniaturized those nuclear weapons, and they can mate them. The question is, can a mated nuclear warhead to an ICBM uh, come back into our atmosphere without burning up? Mm. Normally, you would have to test that. And that's what we haven't seen. And that's what we haven't seen. But, I mean, theoretically, they have that capability. So, theoretically, they could demonstrate that tomorrow. They could demonstrate that tomorrow. Theoretically, they could try to demonstrate it tomorrow and fail and show us that they don't have the capability and they have more work to do. That's correct. So, is there some, in your mind, advantage to Kim in not actually testing that piece of it? I think Kim has made it clear to certainly his people, but also to the international community, he feels he has a a deployable nuclear deterrent. He has shown that he has the ICBM, he has the, in fact, the hydrogen bomb test to, to prove he has this capability. So uh, I think from Kim's vantage point, he's done what he has to do to show the U.S. and the, and the, and the global community that he's a nuclear weapon state. So I want to talk next, Joe, about motivations, which is something that I know that you wrote about recently in the Cypher Brief, which you are a member of their network, and you write an awful lot for them, which I think is terrific. The first motivation I'd like to ask you about is Kim's motivation at this moment for coming to the table and for this flurry of diplomatic initiatives that we've seen. I think Kim Jong-un is hurting. I think he, because uh, of the sanctions, and not only the sanctions, but the sanctions being implemented by countries like China. Uh, so the economy is hurting, and he's experiencing uh, some significant economic pressures. The joint military exercises, the introduction of strategic uh, assets, had to be very intimidating if you were sitting in Pyongyang. I think a mixture of the sanctions and the joint military exercises uh, were pretty compelling. But I also think Kim Jong-un could come to the table now saving face. He's not coming as a supplicant. He's not asking for anything. He's saying, I'm a nuclear weapon state. I've shown I could attack your country with nuclear weapons. I have no intention of doing that. But I'm here to talk about let's get a peaceful resolution. Let's walk this one back. And so in your mind then, sounds to me like you would give the president some credit here for, for bringing him to the table. I give the president lots of credit for bringing him to the table. Yes, I agree with that. So nobody in your mind has been tougher on North Korea than, than President Trump? Trump has been tough on North Korea, but he's also giving him that offer, right? He's always said, he said it from the beginning, he'd, have a, he'd sit down and have a hamburger with uh, Kim Jong-un. So he's always told him, I'm amenable. And, and certainly when Kim Jong-un passed the invitation through the South Koreans, the response, I'm sure Kim Jong-un was extremely surprised, as many people were, that the president said, yeah, you want yeah, to meet with yeah. me? I'll meet with you. And that's the second question about motivations. In Kim's mind, what do you think he thinks the president's motivation is for starting off with a summit as opposed to starting off at some lower level of 
of negotiations. You know, Michael, when you look back to the 25 years of, of, of intimate negotiations with North Korea and the failures, we had some successes, but they were temporary successes. Ultimately, they all failed. North Korea has more nuclear weapons. They have more delivery systems. North Korea is, a, is more of a threat to the region and to the global community. I think the president is seeing that those who preceded him were not successful. Diplomacy, the highest levels of, uh, of governance, uh, could not move North Korea away from pursuing a very uh, threatening nuclear weapons program. I think in the final analysis, I don't know what, was his, uh, what his actual motivation was, but I could see where his, his thinking could be, well, if we haven't been successful for 25 years, let's be bold. Let's just go for it. If he wants to meet with me, yes, I'll sit down with him and I'll tell him what's available to him if he, if he pursues a peaceful uh, resolution of these issues. But also the prospects of not pursuing a peaceful resolution, the consequences on the part of North Korea. I think that was part of, I don't know, but I would think that would be part of the calculus for the president to say, let's give it a shot. Nothing else worked. And then you've, you've one of the few people who've been to North Korea how do you think the North Korean people are viewing all of this? You know, wh what is the government saying to them about what's happening here? And then how are they perceiving it? Well, you know, whenever uh, we had former presidents visit North Korea, and whenever former presidents visited, it was always on the front page of KCNA, and it was put out because it gets the attention to his father, Kim Jong-il, and now in the, in the case of Kim Jong-un. This is a big deal for Kim Jong-un. This is a big deal for the North Korean people. To sit down with the sitting president of the United States, it's significant. And they've come out. They've even spoke, uh, I think, uh, in volumes about the summit with Moon Jae-in on the 27th of, of April. I think this is showing Kim Jong-un as the leader in North Korea and his focus, mind you, on economic reform. We need to do better economically. And the fact is they do need to do better economically. And, those, and the people in North Korea, could have, I'm sure, are applauding that, saying, I need to work a little more diligently, or not a little. I need to put much more into economic reform and economic development. Because, Michael, as we sit here, there's significant malnourishment in North Korea. Some of reporting coming out indicates there are pockets of starvation. To me, that's, that's unreal in 2018. So, yes... I think the people in North Korea are applauding this. It certainly, certainly gives Kim a lot of credibility with his own people. I, I'm not saying he didn't have it before, but it certainly adds to his credibility to be able to sit down with the president of the United States. Absolutely, no question. Okay, the summit itself, a lot of discussion on location. You know, where is this going to happen? Two questions for you. What do you see as the options, number one? And then number two, do you think it matters where it is? Yeah, I think it does. I, I think it doesn't touch the, the particulars, the, if the substance that will be discussed, obviously. But I think, uh, I think it does. We want a venue that's amenable to North Korea and certainly convenient for the United States also. I know, uh, you know Singapore has been a country that uh, North Korea has visited often because in the past Singapore had no visa requirements for North Korean officials. So they, they did a lot of work in, in Singapore. Geneva, we had the uh, agreed framework. Uh, international, a lot of uh, community there. And certainly the, what we saw on the 27th of April in Panmunjom, the Peace House, the symbolism there is, is, is profound. And I, I will indicate also whether it's Washington, D.C. or Pyongyang, that's pretty powerful having a leader visit either one. I also believe Beijing, although I don't believe it's, it's a venue being considered, given the work that 
China has done with the six-party talks, with the joint statement. They hosted the six-party talks. Uh, they're allies of North Korea, although there's lots of tension. I think that one would not be a bad venue also. DMZ? The DMZ, the peace out. And what, what I, uh, almost what President Moon Jae-in did on the mm-hmm. 27th with Kim Jong-un. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very symbolic, right? It's very the, symbolic. It's the last line of the Cold War in the yeah. world. And Absolutely. That's what they're there to tear down. And Absolutely. And making this a peace park and... And the, and the transformation from the hostilities to, uh, if you will, collaboration. Okay. Second, second set of questions about the summit, and that's expectations. So you recently wrote again in the Cypher Brief that, that, that you think that Kim will make a case for hanging on to some of his weapons. Yes. So what do you see Kim Jong-un's expectations as as he goes into the summit? You know, Kim Jong-un, from my dealings with the North Korean over, over a number of years... You know, always talking about we want to normalize relations with the United States. We could be a good friend of the United States, but accept us as a nuclear weapon state. We would, this is our defense. This is a nuclear deterrent. We would never use it. Uh, and they would always cite Pakistan. We have it because we're afraid of you. Yes. And they cited Pakistan. You've done it with Pakistan. You could do it with us. And we've always said, no, it, the proliferation issue is immense. Other countries would seek nuclear weapons capabilities, but also proliferation in the sense of, of, of a nuclear weapon or fissile material getting into the hands of a bad actor, state actor, non-state actor. So, no. So, but I, I would see Kim Jong-un going, knowing he has to talk about comprehensive, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement, where he could say, look, uh, Mr. President, I agree with that. I mean, we're prepared to denuclearize in a comprehensive way, but let us keep one or two or three or four nuclear weapons because it gives us assurances. It makes, and it's something I could show to my people that we have reached reach this level of, of acceptability as a, as a responsible nuclear weapon state. And, we, and I could see them making the case, and I think they would understand, and I think they do understand, it will go nowhere. There is no way, in my personal view, that we would ever accept North Korea even retaining one or two nuclear weapons. Do you think that Kim believes that he can get a deal in one meeting, or do you think that he th- sees this as the beginning of a process? That's a very good question. I think he feels he can get a deal in principle in, in one meeting, a rather long meeting, I might add, given all the issues that are there. But I think he knows it is the beginning of a process. And, uh, and therefore, this one meeting is going to set the uh, framework and, if you will, the roadmap for pursuing that process. So the meeting is, is of course, we, Kim Kim could agree in principle to denuclearize comprehensively, verifiably. Uh, and we will memorialize that. I mean, uh, you know, there will be, whether it's a joint statement, there will be something to memorialize that. Otherwise, I think the process would be very difficult to pursue. So the meeting is important, but that would be the beginning of a significant process. Given the magnitude of what North Korea has, what we believe they have in North Korea in regards to the number of nuclear weapons, the locations, the number of facilities, plutonium, uranium enrichment, and but other other aspects to it, the scientists, the technologists mm-hmm. who've worked on the program, and the missiles as well, the long range uh, missiles. Absolutely, absolutely, Michael. This is a this is going to be. But we have this experience. Uh, we have the CTR. We have the experience. We've done it with the uh, former Soviet Union, uh, and, it, and it could be done. And, and but the key would be the initial meeting or meetings, and getting agreement on a, a very uh, stringent verification protocol with challenge inspections, with timelines, 
I mean, these are issues that need to sort yeah. of be agreed upon. So we're bleeding over now to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is what do you see as our expectations? So, you know, you said what his expectations were. He'd like to hang on to a few. few of these things. What do you think our expectations are? Complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement with a very strong verification protocol with timelines. So at the end of the day, does does denuclearization mean something different? Because he says, Kim Jong-un says all the time, denuclearization. I'm for denuclearization. But it sounds like to him, denuclearization means hanging on to a couple of these things. Does that word mean different things to, to us and them? I think he's hopeful, but I think he's also realistic. I think he knows it's going to have to be comprehensive. My sense is if he if he's heard reports coming out of the White House and other places... We will not accept even one or two nuclear weapons. No, I think on the, uh, on the other side of it, though, Michael, is North Korea has, and Kim Jong-un has, a, a list of requirements that touch security assurances, that touch the need for a really economic development assistance, that speak to a process to normalize relations with the United States so they can get into the international community, so they can start doing something with their economy. We have a lot of deliverables we could provide to Kim Jong-un, and I think he... He is solicitous of getting those deliverables, very much so. He would like to get that and still maybe keep a few nuclear weapons. But I think in in his heart of hearts, he knows that's not going to happen. So him coming to these talks with President Donald Trump, my personal view, I think he's prepared to accept the fact that he's not going to have one or two. But he wants that path to security assurances, the end of the Korean War, economic development assistance, and ultimately a normal relationship with the United States. So this is this is a significant thing you just said, I think, because the judgment of the intelligence community has long been he'll never give them up. So you saying that he has reached a point where he might be willing to give them up under the right circumstances is, I think, really significant. Yes, I believe he's that you're prepared. saying I that. think he's prepared to do that. Yeah. I think he's made that strategic decision. And don't forget, this is a young man who was educated in Switzerland. He knows the world, I mean, he, he, and he knows the tragic situation North Korea is in in, in regards to its economic uh, development, comparing it to the South. I mean, when you go back to the 60s and 70s, it was North Korea was the model for East Asia. Right. And now it was it was advanced economically relative yes, to South Korea at yes, one point. Exactly. It's really amazing. That's exactly. And now it's an economic basket case. No question, Michael. I think this is an imperative for him. And he feels he's shown what he could do on the nuclear and the missile side. He's shown he's tough. And now he's prepared, I think, uh, and again, this is a strategic decision he would have to make. And I believe, in my personal view, I believe he's made that strategic decision. So are you worried that even with that strategic decision that he, there would be an imperative to cheat? There'd be an imperative to have a covert program somewhere? That's a very good question. Uh, given the experience we've had with North right. Korea, occasionally right. or more than occasionally, they do cheat. Right. That's why verification is, is critical to it. Look, he's consolidated power. He's making the calls right now. One, two, three years hence, there may be pressures on him maybe to try to cheat, maybe to try to bring something into the equation. We have to be mindful of that because our optic, as, as you know so well, into North Korea is rather limited. It's still opaque. So, But I think at this moment, I think we, we're looking at a man who's made a strategic decision. Will he cheat down the road? I think there may, there, there may be that possibility because of uh, certain imperatives that are, will influence him down the road. And that's why we have to be uh, strong with our verification protocols, 
with the uh, challenged inspections and also having a presence in North Korea. We're talking about normal relations. So we would be having our embassy, certainly in the beginning liaison office, and there'd be a lot of exchanges. And I think this is where Kim Jong is now. He, I think economic development assistance is key. I think he's prepared to open the economy up with foreign direct investment. I, again, there's a threat to that. But I think he's confident enough because he's now seemingly, and I think more than seemingly, I think he is in control. So I don't think those naysayers who are saying, what are you doing, are going to be whispering in his ear or working behind his back. They might be actually whispering the direct opposite, right? That's exactly This right. is the time. That's take, exactly This is the time right. to take advantage Very of this. Very good point. That's exactly to, right. to, to fix our country. Yes. We'll continue with our conversation after a short break from our sponsor, Raytheon. In the next-gen controls of tomorrow's UAVs. In the high-tech guidance systems of tomorrow's weapons. In the supercomputers mounting tomorrow's cyber defense, Raytheon is there. Driving innovation that helps the U.S. Army protect people, information, and infrastructure. Together, we're making the world a safer place. Let me ask another question about expectations, which is the, the entire focus here is on the nuclear program in terms of how people are talking about it. There's other bad stuff that they do. Of course. From cyber attacks to the manufacturing of illegal drugs to counterfeiting U.S. currency to assassinating people um, outside of North Korea. Do you believe the U.S. is going to bring those issues to the table? And do you believe he understands that that's going to happen, perhaps? I think he understands that we will bring those issues uh, illicit activities, counterfeiting our cigarettes, our pharmaceuticals, certainly human rights issues, the gulags that are going on in North Korea, and indeed immediately the three Americans being held there, but also the other weapons of mass destruction, chemical, biological, cyber, what they did with Sony Pictures. I think he knows that because we have also discussed that in the six-party talks with the joint statement of 2005 when we said before you can get a normal relationship with the United States, these bilateral issues need to be discussed And there needs to be a path to resolution. We need to see progress and benchmarks and resolution. And they would all be on the table. So if Kim Jong-un's ultimate objective is to have a normal relationship with the United States, because that would open him up then as no longer a pariah state, this would be very necessary because these are issues we will discuss with him and want progress on if he wants that normalized relationship. So I think he understands that. And how do we, how do we, the United States, need to think about the other key players here? As, as, as we sit down and talk to him directly, how do we need to think about the interests of South Korea, the interests of Japan, the interests of China, the interests of Russia? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think we do need to bring China into this. When we talk about a peace, peace treaty, when we talk about uh, to end the, the armistice in the Korean War, I think China being one of the signatories needs to be part of that. So I think it, you know, uh, there's no question China needs to be part of it. But this is a, it's not just a U.S. issue, and that's what your question implies very clearly. It's certainly not a, a U.S. issue alone. It's just, uh, it touches our allies in South Korea and Japan, but also China, Russia, and, and, and those regional countries, partners of ours. Yeah. And, and, and no, Japan has one particular issue, right, uh, that's non-nuclear. Right? Uh, it has this issue of, of the kidnapping of Japanese citizens And that's over where the, the bilaterals come in. And that was our, if you will, our joint statement of 2005, September 2005. These bilateral issues will be worked bilaterally. Japan will talk about the abductee issue. 
uh, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un, you need to resolve this issue if you want a normal relationship with Japan. We, the United States, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un, you need to resolve the issue of illicit activities, these other weapons of mass destruction, chemical, biological, and, and, and show to us you're not pursuing these, these programs and you would not use cyber to attack our infrastructure or our companies or what have you. I think this is all part of this biological, bi- bilateral dialogue yeah. that we will have. So you've actually sat across the table from these, these folks and negotiated. What advice would you give to the president about their negotiating style and how to deal with them? You know, there's no trust between the United States and North Korea. I think we all know that. And now this is Kim Jong-un meeting the president of the United States. So I think he, he's probably going to have to be a little, I think he'll be a little nervous in coming in on that. But I, I think one thing is the North Koreans do their homework. They have very clear talking points. They know what they want to accomplish. And they're very good negotiators knowing that they want to, want to go at it. But they've never sat down with the president of the United States to discuss these issues, to discuss anything on you. So what I would tell the president is, is that, you know, obviously we're talking about another head of state. They, 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 everyone deserves respect, uh, uh, given, but to be very direct, to be very candid, also to be understanding they do have security concerns and needs. This is a country that's living in a tough neighborhood with over, you know, 500 invasions over 2,000 years. So they do have needs. So a bit of understanding their, their requests for security assurances. But to make it very clear what our demands are, and I don't want to use the demands, what our requirements are to have a normal relationship with the United States and to sort of, uh, not sort of, but indeed uh, to not be a pariah state as they are now, heavily sanctioned. So we would just put that on the table very clearly and understandably, hearing their needs, normal relations, economic development, at the end of the Korean War, security assurances. Okay, we understand that. But but making it very clear, this is what we need. And for us to leave today, if it's a one-day meeting over an extended uh, period of time during that one day, this is what we need to accomplish. I think they would appreciate that. A very professional meeting. Again, this is a great honor for Kim Jong-un to meet and to actually sit down and negotiate with a sitting president. So what do you see as the possible outcomes? And what do you think the most likely outcome is? I'm guardedly, if not more than guardedly, I'm up somewhat. I'm not somewhat. I'm more than somewhat optimistic. You sound more optimistic than you ever have been. Yes, I'm more optimistic. One, well, given the starting with his New Year's address, and then the Winter Olympics and then the, uh, you know, the uh, meeting with the, uh, on the 27th with Moon Jae in the summit and, and some of the things we're hearing. Yes, I'm much more optimistic than I was before. I personally do think he's made that strategic decision. I think he needs assurances, though, because I think he feels very vulnerable uh, that, you know, uh, he's got to protect the, his country and he's got to protect the, the Kim regime, if you will. Survival, survival, survival. What do, you, what do you think he needs to see to assure him? I think he, to get a commitment from the president of the United States that we will provide those security assurances, a non-aggression pact. We will not attack, not invade, using nuclear, chemical weapons. We're looking at liaison officers. We will sit down with you to talk about ending the Korean War, and we will work towards normalizing our relationship uh, with the other deliverables, of energy assistance, economic but do you think development he could say? Assistance. Do you think he could say, you have to show me too? So let's end the military exercises. Let's let's. Why do you need your troops on on Michael? The I personally believe if he brings those subjects up, because the North Koreans have heard often, our 
military presence in South Korea is between the United States and the Republic of Korea. Our joint exercises with the Republic of Korea. I think if he brings them up and if he and he brings them up in a confrontational way, I would advise him not to do that because I think that could be the beginning of the end of the meeting. These are not issues he should be bringing up at this at this meeting with the sitting president of the United States, President Donald Trump, who's prepared obviously to sit down with him and talk about these issues, but these are bilateral issues. At this stage, they do not affect North Korea. This this is not what we're sitting down to talk about with North Korea. And the, the North-South summit we just had, which was itself remarkable, how do you think that affected the coming summit between the president and Kim Jong-un? I think it helped. I think it helped. I think the atmospherics, I think the Panmunjom declaration was a very comprehensive de- declaration, a little weak on the denuclearization piece, very strong on the inter-Korean piece. But all the, the words, and now look, we were there before. We were there, we had, you know, the summits with South Korea. They had two failed summits, 2000 and 2007. But I think in this regard, I think the, the summit uh, was, was positive. I think Moon Jae-in came away feeling very good about it. I think Kim Jong-un made the right statements. We didn't get the granularity on denuclearization, and the president will get that. But you had, at least I had the sense watching the North-South Summit that, that once it happened and happened the way it did, there was no not going ahead with the, the summit between the president I, and I totally Kim agree with you. Right? There I was totally no, agree. There was no going backwards at that no, point. No going backwards. There was, there's a momentum there, Mike. Yes, yes. If for some reason it does go poorly and we're back to square one, Right. In your mind, is there a military solution to this problem? You know, uh, it's, a, it's a very good question. My first response would be it's got to be through diplomacy. It's got to be, it's got to be through negotiations. But if, look, if, if we don't succeed here and North Korea continues to escalate, build more missile delivery systems, more nuclear ca- capabilities, and, and continues to threaten the region and the United States... I could see something of a, you know, uh, and I think we were there about six months ago where, you know, we were looking at, you know, uh, the possibility of stumbling into conflict. So, yes, there's that possibility uh, of of further escalation and the possibility of stumbling into conflict. Yes, I think it will be even greater if this doesn't succeed. One more question, Joe. The president has to make a decision on the Iran nuclear deal. What difference do you think? that decision makes to the summit with Kim. Do you think it matters or not? I don't think it matters, to be very, very honest. North Korea has a good relationship with Iran. They provided Iran with a lot of their missile capabilities. But I, but, but Iran is, 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 I think North Korea realizes the U.S. is dealing with North Korea. It's a different context. Uh, if the JCPOA is amended or we're walking away because of, of, of Iran's behavior... I really don't think it's going to uh, affect our negotiations with North Korea. I mean, we've been doing this with North Korea for over 25 years, so that is unique in itself. Uh, Iran is something different, and I think the North Koreans see that. Yeah, you know, the conventional wisdom out there is that it will have an impact, that, that Kim will say to himself, if the U.S. won't be consistent with a deal, right, then I can't trust any deal they make with me. But my sense is exactly yours. My sense is that Kim is smart enough to know where the president is headed here on Iran, and he's still decided to go down this road. That's right. And I think he understands when the president speaks about Iran's ballistic missile behavior, some of their behavior uh, in Syria and Iraq and Yemen. I I think they understand that. Joe, it's been great to have you on the show, and it is always good to see you. Great seeing you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
That was Ambassador Joe Detrani. I'm Michael Morrell, and this was Intelligence Matters. Please join us next time. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis and Jamie Benson. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.